Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Marvin Ellison, CEO of Lowe's. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken over in a position after the previous guy or gal left under bad circumstances? If you have, then you know those are some of the toughest situations to walk into. Now, Marvin is amazing for a lot of reasons, but get this, in his 25-year career, in every new role, he has taken over for someone who's been fired or forced out. Now, that's a man who's not afraid of a tough assignment. Marvin was actually born as the son of sharecroppers, and he has risen through the ranks with a ton of courage over the years. He took the jobs other people didn't want because he knew that was how he could prove his abilities. Marvin is also one of the few African-American Fortune 500 CEOs in our country, and I can't tell you how honored I am to have him here. Let's jump right in and see what happens when we're brave enough to tackle even the tough assignments. Marvin, this is all about learning how you lead, and I'd like to start out by hearing how you spent your early days as the new CEO of Lowe's. Well, well, David, you know, I, as you know, I'd, I'd been in the home improvement industry uh, for 12 years uh, working for the Home Depot. And then I, I took a chairman CEO role uh, in a, the turnaround of, of JCPenney, which uh, I learned more from that experience than, than I did, you know, in my MBA program years prior. But, <laughs> but, I, was, but I had a unique opportunity to, to come back into an industry that I love, which was home improvement. And, and I did something uh, different, and I, I learned from my transition from Home Depot to JCPenney, and that is I jumped immediately in because I felt it was important for me to get a chance to, to look at the pace of the business during the holiday season. Uh, and so I had really no transition period between the two companies. And, and in retrospect, uh, that was probably not the best decision when you're shifting not only companies but industries. So when I decided to, to join Lowe's, I asked the board to give me a 30-day gap between leaving JCPenney and officially starting with Lowe's. And during that 30-day period, I decided to go out uh, and try to hit all 15 geographic regions of the company, you know, just as an uh, unannounced bystander visiting stores, observing, and just having casual conversation you know, with the associates and customers, you know, as I just browse around, you know, the different parts of the country interacting. Uh, and, and I learned a tremendous amount uh, about what was great about Lowe's, and that was primarily the dedicated men and women that worked in the stores and how they were working and persevering through so many limitations that a company our size should not have placed, you know, on our associate base, but also identified, you know, a lot of shortcomings. And so, you know, just imagine you're trying to get out within really it turned into a six-week period and trying to visit all 15 geographic regions around the United States within that time frame. But it was an incredible lesson and, and learning process for me. And, and from that, it allowed me to, to work with my newly developed leadership team to lay out you know, our strategic framework on how we would transform the company. You know, Marvin, I understand that, you know, your first day when you went out into the field, there was actually a group at the headquarters who had a sign out there for you, ready to welcome you, and you, you were out, out in the field. You know, so you went straight to where the rubber meets the, the road, which is always a powerful thing to do. Did you do that as well, not only to learn, but to shock the system and let them know that was what was really important to you in terms of who you need to focus on and, and that there was a new sheriff in town? No, it really, uh, I'll be honest with you, it, it, was, it was really my attempt just, just to learn. I wanted my first day on the job to feel like the first day of any associate in the company. And, and typically, their first day is, is in the stores trying to learn. And, and, and to that point, you know, I, someone you know, sent me a photo of a, a really a big digital sign they had at every entrance, and they had a, a big photo of me, you know, welcoming our new CEO. <laughs> and it was, you know, and I'm looking at that thinking, you know, that's, 
a little ostentatious, you know, to be having a photo up. And I, I hope the associates believed I had nothing to do with that. But I'm also thinking I have no intention of being in the office on my first day. And, and so when I communicated, you know, to the HR team that I would not physically be on the corporate campus, instead I wanted to go to a store and work at the pro desk because I, I knew from my uh, tours around the country that that was a huge opportunity that we had to figure out and fix. Their first recommendation was, well, that's great. We'll send a, a, a photo crew, you know, with our PR team to kind of document, you know, your entire first day because we think it'd be great to show to the associates. And I told them, no, I don't want any cameras. I don't want anyone from media or PR present. I just want to go and learn. And I want to spend time with the associates. I want I don't want them to be intimidated, uh, you know, from answering questions and just relaxing and having you know good, you know, transparent, candid dialogue. And so it, it really was to learn. It was to to try to engage with the associates. And look, and, and you know my story. I started out in retail as a four dollar and thirty five cent an hour part time employee working for Target while I was going uh, to the University of Memphis you know, just in an attempt to pay for books and put gas in my car and, and help pay the rent. And, and that turned into, you know, a lifelong love affair with, with retail. You know, you know, you, you, in those first six weeks at Lowe's, you learned a lot. What was the biggest surprise that you uncovered? Well, the, the biggest surprise is, is how over a period of time, the previous management team had unintentionally taking all of what I would call the incentive uh, and the decision-making uh, and the courage away from, from the field team. They just, they felt like that they had no empowerment. I'll give, give you two great examples. So one day I show up in Bullhead City, Arizona. And Bullhead City, Arizona is on the, is on the Arizona and Nevada border. So I, I pop into this store. The average household income of this marketplace is roughly $35,000 a year. So this is, this is not uh, a, a high-end uh, marketplace from a household income, but, but these are customers that depend on Lowe's. So I walk in the store, and the first thing I see is a group of associates setting an end cap of deck stain. There's only one problem. There are no decks in Arizona. It's all concrete. And so I walk, up, I walk up to the associate who happened to be the store manager, and I said, yeah, introduce myself. So to his shock, the new CEO was in his store. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, I've been out of home improvement for about four years, but the last time I was in Arizona, I never remember seeing a deck. I thought all of the patios were concrete. He said, well, that's right, Marvin. We have no decks in this market. I said, well, why are we setting an end cap of deck stain? He said, well, that's the planogram. So the planogram came from the corporate office. And we're going to set the planogram. I said, even if you know as the store manager that the product will not sell and customers won't buy it. He said, Marvin, you don't understand. Uh, here at Lowe's, we do what we're told in the stores. And if I get a store visit from my district manager, from someone at the corporate office, and we're not set to planogram, I will get in trouble. So we're going to set this planogram as prescribed. <laughs> so... <laughs> we we had so I took obviously took note of that and so the next day I'm in I'm in Austin Texas it is 112 degrees outside and I walk in the store and the first thing I see in the patio set is a fire pit <laughs> so I find the store manager and and, the, and to my great fortune the district manager was actually in the store introduced myself and I asked a very basic question. Why are we setting a display with a fire pit and it is 112 degrees outside? And as you can imagine, the answer was because it's the planogram. And so from that, it became painfully apparent to me that we had literally taken all the empowerment away from our frontline leaders to think and operate in a way that best served the customer and obviously served the company and our shareholders. And, and we had literally created wind-up toys where, where they, were, they did what they were told. We didn't want them to think. We didn't want them to process. And, and, and so from that, David, we created what, what we call, and we shamefully stole from other companies, uh, Lowe's University. 
And in Lowe's University, we made a decision that we were going to bring in every single store manager, all 2,200 of them, over an 18-month period and give them one week of cultural refreshment on how we expect you to lead at Lowe's. And in every one of those sessions, we did them once a week and sometimes more than one session within a week, I would go down and I would take one hour every week and do a training session on effective leadership. And part of my leadership lesson was sharing those two examples and challenging the team on what it takes to be a leader and the courage of being empowered and how we would have their backs if they made a decision that they truly believe was in the best interest of the customer and best interest of competing in the marketplace. And, and we cycled through all of our leaders. And what was so interesting is I would be in a class and I would have a store manager there who had three years of tenure, three months of tenure, and 27 years of tenure. So we did this on purpose. We did not want to do it by tenure or in, in any way segregating people by the time they spent at Lowe's. We felt it was powerful to, to create classes that had a very broad uh, you know, list of people, but all, not only that, but people who had you know, differing time frames of, of tenure and time with the company to foster really interesting conversation and debate within the classes. And that was part of our transformation from a cultural and from a leadership perspective. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, so Marvin, you've been there now a couple of years and it's been a pretty tough time, obviously, with all the actions that have happened in the last, last year or so. You know, what are you doing now to stay connected to the stores? Well, you know, I, I've learned a couple of lessons starting out as an hourly associate. I, I remember vividly when I would come in and I would clock in at the time clock at Target and posted by the time clock uh, was an org structure with photos of the CEO and the executive leadership team. And I would look at that photo and that org chart every day, and I had no personal connection with any person on that organizational chart. I never saw them in person. I never heard their voice. I never communicated with them. And, and as a kid in college, working hard, you know, trying to make ends meet, I just would sit back and wonder, how would it be if an hourly associate like me, someone who had ideas, someone who had suggestions, could actually get access to someone sitting in one of those positions of influence? Would they listen? And, and what would I learn about them? And so from that, I've tried to create an environment where I eliminate the communication filters between myself and the frontline team. And so a couple of ways that I do that. Uh, first, uh, every single Friday, uh, I have a personal message that I give to the company. Every associate in the company, including our associates in our buying offices uh, in China and in our, our offices in India. And the message you know, ranges from five to 10 minutes. And what I talk about are the events of the week that impact the company. I talk about uh, people I've met who have done outstanding customer service. I share those stories. I talk about things in the news that are relevant to our associates, but I just have a personal conversation with them. And within that, I share my email address. So if they have a question uh, or if they have an issue that's not being addressed, they know how to reach me directly. And I don't have anyone that manages those emails for me. I'll, I'll look at them, I'll forward them to the appropriate person to take a look at. And trust me, our, my associates have now keenly become aware of how to reach me because I hear from them every single day, which is exactly <laughs> what my intention was. So that's number one. Number two is on a, on a monthly basis, uh, I do a televised town hall. And, and obviously now it's virtual where mm -hmm. we have people submit questions in or I take questions live. I do it for an hour. Uh, I don't see the questions in advance uh, because I want to have an authentic conversation uh, with the associates. Whatever they ask, if I can fit it into the allotted time, you know, I answer and we just have good back and forth dialogue. What I've learned, David, you know, even if the answer is no, uh, as long as you're answering the questions and you're being authentic and you're having open dialogue, uh, associates appreciate that. 
You know, as we were talking a little bit earlier, uh, Marvin, you know, before you joined Lowe's, you were the chairman and CEO of JCPenney, and you led a major turnaround there. And, you know, you, you took JCPenney from losing, I think, $5.64 a share to you're making $0.22 cents a share. You, you, you generate positive cash flow, pay down a lot of debt. You did this all in four years. You're having this great success. As a leader, what drove you to make a decision to leave at that time? Because you were on a roll. You know, David, it's, it's, it's a great question. Uh, it's, it's a long story. I'll give you the short version. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm at JCPenney. I'm totally committed uh, to the, the continued turnaround. Uh, my wife and I uh, and my, at the time, 16-year-old daughter, we love uh, living in Dallas. Uh, my son had relocated. and He was going to school. Uh, college in Texas, and so we we were planning routes, uh, and and all of a sudden, you know, I, I get contacted uh, by uh, one of the new board members uh, who's leading the search uh, for the new CEO. Uh, this is a board member whom I'd worked with in the past, who ironically enough was an activist investor, so he took a position in the Home Depot years prior, and I had a chance to meet him. He had a chance to meet me. Uh, and from that, there was a lot of mutual respect uh, for both of us. And to be quite honest with you, when, when he first reached out to me uh, regarding the opportunity, uh, I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested because it wasn't part of my plan. My plan was to come to JCPenney to do all I could to help turn the business around and, and try to work to be as much of a blessing for the employees of the company because they'd gone through difficult periods with a, with a, a CEO that really put the business on the brink in, in previous years. And I had made a decision not to even discuss this Lowe's opportunity with my wife because I didn't want her to think that, that we had the potential from uprooting the family again. And so the short version is my wife and I now have been together for, we'll be celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary this year. So we've been together for a long time. Congrats. Thank you. And so, you know, I never keep anything from her. So I finally decided to, to let her know, look, there's an opportunity at Lowe's. I don't want you to get concerned. Uh, I'm not going to pursue it. You know, I want to be committed to seeing through this transformation here at JCPenney. So don't get concerned about the family being uprooted. And so she looked at me and she had a very interesting response. She said, well, I guess, I guess you've changed your commitment and you've changed the mission that we've talked about that, that we're on uh, in this life that we live in. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you've always said that you will be driven, your career will be driven by going to the place where you can have the greatest impact on the largest number of people. And she said, the last time I checked, Lowe's has more employees, larger investment base, more shareholders, and a greater market presence. So don't you believe that you can have a greater impact on a larger number of people at Lowe's than you can at JCPenney? And this is from a woman who had no desire to move. Wow, that's and incredible. I, and I said <laughs> to her, I said, I said, well, Sharon, you're right. That's what we've said. Uh, and I said, I didn't consider that. I was more concerned about the family. And she said, let me worry about the family. You look into this opportunity. Let's, we'll pray about it. We'll, we'll be led, uh, you know, by our religious faith. But let's understand what we're committed to. And our commitment is being the greatest blessing to the largest number of people. And, and from that, you know, we decided to take a look at the opportunity. And, and here I am. I used to work at, at Pepsi, and we, we absolutely fought Coke day in and day out. Did, did you have any trepidation going back to, to, to you know, the home improvement in, industry to Lowe's and competing against all the people you knew at Home Depot? The, the short answer is, is yes. It, it's, it's, it was part of the reason why it was never part of my long-term plan to, to end up at a competitor. But I'll be very honest with you. I, I had that conversation, obviously with my wife as well, uh, and, and we talked about it. And, and here's the reality. I, I gave Home Depot 12 great years. I have lifelong friends there. Uh, and when Home Depot made the decision 
in the CEO uh, transition uh, to move in a different direction, you know, I went to the chairman CEO and asked to allow me to stay, and, and I was willing to stay and not pursue any other opportunities if I could just have some level of role expansion just so I could make a greater contribution. And through every attempt I made to try to find a way to stay, it just didn't work out. So my departure from the Home Depot uh, was obviously my decision, uh, but it was something that I did uh, begrudgingly because I, I loved the people uh, more so than anything, and I wanted to be there. So as I process, you know, going back and competing against a former company that I love so much, uh, it came down to a very simple analogy. I grew up as the middle child of seven kids. I had two older brothers, and we would go outside almost every day in the summer, and we'd compete on the basketball court. We'd compete in a, a lot of different sports. I still loved them, but they were, you know, competitors when we were out there on the field of play. I had two sisters, or three sisters, rather, and, and we would always compete playing chess. You know, we, we'd go at it, you know, we'd leave the chessboard set, and we'd come back and finish it on the weekend. I still love them. I, I still think the world of them, but, you know, competition uh, is great, and, and it's not personal. You know, you started out as this 435 hourly at uh, Target. You, you you come from a very humble background. You just talked about a you know, large family. You know, how does this affect your your thinking today? Your your the background, your your childhood. Well, I, I think in a couple of ways. Uh, you know, my dad is is my hero, and I'm blessed that he's he's still a, he's still alive and and with me. He's had some health issues, but but he is he is doing well, and and I'm proud that I can pick up the phone and call him, I can go in to see him. But the reason why that's a relevant point is my dad never graduated from high school. He, he was raised by his great aunt and uncle, and, and they were raised on the farm. They were sharecroppers. And that's all he knew, but he had desires to do a lot more. But he ultimately had to drop out of high school because his great uncle became ill. He had to get the crops in. And that weighed more you know, on the relevance of the family than him staying in school and getting a high school diploma. He ultimately met my mother. They got married, started a family, and he never decided to go back. But this is a man, uh, along with my mother, who raised seven kids. Uh, and when I was born, they were sharecroppers. We're not talking about owning a farm. We're talking about, you know, the, the classic uh, Jim Crow era sharecropping, where you are leasing land, uh, you're borrowing money to buy seed, fertilizer, you're putting your labor in, and at the end of the season, you never get out of debt because you never make enough to pay for the leased land, you never make enough to pay for the seed and fertilizer that you borrowed, and so you're in perpetual debt, and, and it's almost you know, a type of you know, indentured servitude. And, and, that's, mm -hmm. and that's what my parents were doing for a living when I was born in 1965. And so the reason why that is relevant is because my dad ultimately worked his way from the field because he found out that he could sell. And he started selling life insurance. And back then, the life insurance industry was very segregated. And so you could only sell, he could in the black communities door to door, but he, was, he had a great gift of gab. He was a handsome guy and, and he was really good at, at selling. And so he worked his way from the cotton fields, from sharecropper to being, a, to being an insurance salesman, to owning his own little really small agency and, and helped us to, to, to move from poverty to lower middle class. But, but ultimately, you know, we, found, we fell on hard economic times. And I remember at one point in my life, and this is not an exaggeration, for almost three years, he worked three jobs. Uh, he worked as an insurance agent, he worked in an overnight cleaning crew at a, at, a, at a local supermarket, and he worked the lunch hour at a Ramana Inn as a busboy. He did that for almost three years, almost killed himself. But he did that because he refused to take government assistance. He felt like that he was an able-bodied man, and if he was able to go get up and go to work, then he felt that others deserved the government assistance because as an able-bodied man, he wanted to provide for his families. So why is that relevant to your question? Because when I go out to the stores and I see associates 
loading trucks, pushing carts, uh, unloading trucks, mopping the floor, I see my parents. I see individuals who are trying to raise kids, make ends meet by taking on any job they can find that is honest uh, and that allows them to do their part to help their families survive. And so I have an enormous amount of respect for all of these associates that I have at all levels because they remind me of my parents. They remind me of me, you know, unloading trucks and mopping floors and driving trucks and all the jobs I've had over my career. And, and so I have a lot of respect for what they have to say. I have a lot of respect for the life that they're living. It's one of the reasons why we try to be philanthropic as a company. It's also one of the reasons why, you know, we paid out over $800 million this year in, in special bonuses and financial assistance specifically for our hourly associates because I really and truly understand the life that they're living because I lived it for the majority of, of my life, seeing my parents struggle and having my own personal struggles. And, 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 and I am glad that that's part of my life journey because it gives me great perspective, you know, sitting in the current position that I'm in. You know, Marvin, that, that story really touches my heart because my mom and dad came up in a very humble background. I always remember going down to our stores at Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC, and I'd see my mom and dad. They, they had a high school education. They worked their tail off. We lived in a trailer coming up. But, man, they worked their tail off. And not, these these people know their stuff. You know, if you just listen to them, you can, you can gain a lot. So I, I really love that, that story. You know, Marvin, you talked about authenticity in terms of your communication. Uh, when did you ever, you know, it's authenticity is a big buzzword these days. I mean, when did you, when did you get, you know, the, 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 the sense of the importance of authenticity of being true to yourself as a leader? You know, David, it's, 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 a, it's a great question. And, and I have to go back a lot of years, but this is a story that I've shared numerous times in, in management training classes. I was working for Target at the time I was a, a store security manager. And, and I was in Memphis, Tennessee. And I happened to be uh, in a new store we had just opened. And it was myself and three peers in the same position. We were going through a series of audits to make sure that the store's operating procedures were being followed. And, and so we're taking a break. So we're in one of the offices. And, and what, as typically happens, you know, when, when, when four people, you know, taking a break, you know, at that level, I mean, we were just complaining about everything that the company was doing wrong. I mean, we had issues with pay and benefits and compensation. We had issues with systems. We had all types of concerns. And, and we were there just venting you know, about how things should be a lot better. And within a couple of minutes of us kind of commiserating in the office, the phone rings, and someone alerts us that the vice president for our function has showed up in the store unannounced. And this is a true story. And, and he wanted to come in and meet us because he found out I got four people from my department in the store. What a great opportunity for me to do a quick, you know, feedback session. So he comes in and he meets us, introduces himself. And we're like, we're totally stunned because, I mean, Memphis was way off the beaten path. And, you know, the corporate office was Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so he was there. And the first question he asked after introducing himself was, look, give me some feedback on how I can help. What's working, what's not? I just want to take advantage of being here to understand if there are any issues that I can address for you. And of course, I mean, we got issues fresh on my mind. We just spent the last 30 minutes, you know, listing out a litany of issues that we were concerned with. And before I could say anything, you know, my peers jumped out and said, nope, things are great. We, we love working <laughs> here. You know, thank you for all that the company is doing, you know, to make this, you know, a great company for us to work at. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's not true, but these guys were more tenured than, 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 than I was, so I, was, I figured that maybe they were just being more politically astute than me, so I just probably should shut up and just, and just listen. But they kept pointing on, you know, and he kept asking, and no one would give him feedback, and I just couldn't take it any longer. And I just raised my hand and said, look, I got one issue. And I said, there's a new uh, check acceptance system uh, that is really not working. We've gotten a lot of customer complaints. And, and I'm not sure that you're aware, but I'm concerned that if we don't address this, 
you know, we're going to lose customers. And he wanted, to, he wanted more information, so I shared more information. I gave him more examples. And he paused for a second. He said, let me make a phone call. So he turned around and made a phone call. And my three peers gave me the evil eye because they're thinking, you've gotten us all in trouble. You're <laughs> telling this guy about this issue. And he turns around and he said, well, look, a couple of things. He said, uh, I just made a call. I found out that, that this system that you're concerned about is actually a pilot. And I just called the corporate office and I asked him to shut it down until we can learn more about the negative customer implications. And he looked at me and he said, Marvin, I've been out visiting stores all week and you're the first person to have the courage to tell me how bad this system was operating. He said, so I would like to come and visit you at your store today before I go back to the corporate office and spend a little time getting to know you. So this was a breakthrough for me because I am way off the beaten path. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and now my vice president of my function wants to actually spend time with me. So he comes to visit me. My store is, is in the most urban area of Memphis, and, and he comes out to visit. He spends time. It was a great visit. We shake hands, and I'm thinking, what a great day, and I believe nothing would ever come of it. Well, two weeks later, I get an invitation from the corporate office to be a part of the company's newly formed diversity committee. And I was recommended by that vice president to come in. And so I fly to Minneapolis the second time in my life I'd ever been on an airplane. I fly to Minneapolis. I'm a part of that committee. While I'm up there, I meet executives from the Florida market. Target was just opening up in Florida. Uh, they were impressed with me. And the next thing I knew, I'm promoted to a district level position working in Florida. So really just standing up for what you believe, having the courage to share your thoughts, really kind of unlocked your career track, right? You know, David, I learned from that event is that we have two choices as leaders. We can, we can stand out or we can blend in. And, and I decided, you know, to stand out, not because I wanted to be recognized, not because I wanted this leader to remember me, because I want to solve a problem. I mean, I was really concerned with the issue, and I felt that we have someone in our store that has the ability to hopefully solve this. And so I decided to stand out for the right reasons. And, and from that, the trajectory of my career changed. I ended up five years later working at the corporate office. Guess who I was reporting to? I was reporting to that vice president because he tracked, <laughs> he tracked my career until the day he retired. And, 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 and so that's just one of those stories that taught me the lesson about being authentic, about being courageous, but also having your facts uh, and being able to have recommendations on how you solve problems. You know your business cold. I mean, you you've been in retail for you know for a long time, but you really know your business. You're 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 really passionate about it, and you've delivered consistent results throughout your career. What's your view of, of the jobs that you've taken as you've climbed the ladder? Well, I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a really you know, interesting uh, career path, and, and you could best describe my career path in life as a study of resilience and taking tough assignments. And let me tell you something else that's a little-known fact. I was thinking about it the other day. In the last 25 years, Every position that I've ever accepted, including my current position, I'll replace someone who was fired or forced out. Last 25 years. Hmm. Uh, in addition to that, I can recall at least 10 separate opportunities that I was passed over for a promotion. And in most cases, I felt I deserved a job. So I've had a lot of ups and downs uh, in this very, very uh, blessed career that I've had, uh, but, but resilience uh, is one of the key hallmarks of why I'm here today because I've had lots of opportunities uh, to just put my head down and, and feel sorry for myself. And I've had a lot of tough assignments. And I learned early on that the best way to move forward is sometimes to take assignments that no one else wants, uh, that no one else is attracted to, uh, that People look, look and frown upon because they don't think that there's a pathway to success. But when you don't have sponsors, when you don't have an Ivy League education, uh, when you don't have mentors with influence, uh, results matter. And so I've taken 
a lot of those tough assignments because I wanted to demonstrate that I could lead. So, and I don't regret it. I mean, it's, it's allowed me to learn a lot of skills, obviously make mistakes along the way, uh, but it's, it's kind of hardened me and, and allowed me to, you know, learn a lot about leadership and, and a lot about how to solve problems. And, and I wouldn't trade one day because it's prepared me for my current assignment. How do you think about failure? You know, you've had some ups and downs, obviously, but, you know, when you think about your organization, you know, how, 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 do, you, how do you think about failure? Well, you know, to me, failure is something that, that you shouldn't frown upon. It's, it's one of the, the best ways to learn. Uh, and, and what I say to myself and to my team is, you know, the only way you don't fail is if you don't get out of bed in the morning because you're going you're gonna to make mistakes, you're going to have disappointments, and, and you're going to have failures. The question is, what do you do about it? What did you learn from it? How will it help you to be a better leader? How will it allow you to be more effective when a similar situation you know, happens uh, you know, in the future? And I'll tell you a real quick story. When, when I was a district-level uh, leader you know, at Target, I interviewed for a regional position. And it's one of those situations where everyone tells you the job is yours. You know, This is just a formality. And of course, I didn't get the job. So I go in, I interview. Uh, I'm devastated that the job is actually given uh, to someone who I am mentoring. You know, so someone <laughs> who, who is seeking me for, for counsel and advice actually gets the position that they didn't even apply for. And so you know, when I go to my functional VP and I, and I ask the question, what happened? You know, he explains to me that you know, in the process was a very influential senior vice president who simply didn't believe I was ready. Uh, and was the absolute reason why I didn't get the job because no one had the political clout to override his objection. And so I'm devastated by this. And of course, I'm thinking, why doesn't the guy like me? So I go through all the, the obvious thoughts in my head, but then I decided to do something different. And this is, this is learning from failure. I decided to pick up the phone, call this senior vice president, and ask him would he be willing to mentor me. Because I was, I was interested to understand through what lens was he looking at me through and what did he see that others did not see? And what could I learn from it? And from that became one of the most interesting leadership learnings of my career because I spent time with him and he was gracious enough to accept you know, my request, although he was very surprised that I was asking, and, and from that, he taught me one critical lesson. And he said to me, well, Marvin, one of the reasons why you did not get my support for this position is because you have a history of always being the loudest voice in the room. You always try to have an answer to every question. And he said, you have to understand when to talk, when to listen, when to lead, and when to follow. And, and that was a great lesson. And, and so from his critique, uh, you know, I worked hard to improve my leadership, improve my engagement with people, understanding how to not be so dominant, you know, in meeting settings. And when the next promotional opportunity uh, came about, this guy went from my greatest detractor to my greatest promoter. And as time, as life would have it, years go, years go by, and, and he reaches out to me uh, when I'm uh, at, the, at the Home Depot and at JCPenney, and I'm helping him with career issues that he's dealing with, uh, you know, at, at this point in, in his life. Uh, so it's, it's interesting how uh, our careers converge. It's, 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 for me, it was a great learning. It, it, was, it was humbling. Uh, but I teach a lot of, you know, my team members and, and young managers I'm mentoring or coaching that you have to try to learn from every failure because it's oftentimes not just about you. It's about how you're perceived and it's about understanding how you can continue to get better. So that's just one of those many examples of failure that I tried to learn from. You know, Marvin, as you were coming up as a you know, African-American executive, you know, I'm sure you many times you were the, the only black person in the, in the room, you know, 
What's that like? And what can leaders learn from that? Well, well David, it's, 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 been a, it's, been a, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, and I think what you can learn, it goes back to what I said previously. You can decide to, to stand out or, or blend in. And I'll, I'll tell you, no, I, look, I got a thousand stories, man. I love these stories. So, you know, I'm, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, and I get promoted to the corporate office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I never worked in a corporate office before. And back then, you know, it was a, you know, shirt and tie, suit and tie corporate environment. And so I go up and, you know, and I'm kind of trying to transition into this new environment. And, and to your question, you know, during the 90s, during that time, there was virtually no diversity at the corporate office. There's no one that looks like me. There are very few people who had spent a lot of their career in the field. Uh, and there's nobody from the South. So I'm literally looking around and I believe and feel like I am the only person in that entire corporate environment that looks, uh, that thinks, or has a background like me. And I remember about four months into this, I go home, my wife is, is pregnant, we're up there by ourselves, and she's asking me, how's it going at work? You appear a little stressed. And I said, well, you know, Sharon, uh, the job isn't that difficult from the technical perspective. I said, I, I know what I'm doing. I said, I just don't feel like I fit in. I said, I, I don't feel like culturally this is a place where I can be successful. And she looked at me and she said, well, let me give you some advice. Why don't you just try being yourself? Just relax and just be yourself and, and see how that works out. And David, I remember something that my dad had said to, to my siblings and I, it seems like a hundred times. And he would say, you know, we, we may not have the nicest car. We may not live in the nicest house. You may not wear the nicest clothes every day, but always remember, no one can beat you being you. No one can beat you being you. So whenever you feel as though that you're not achieving the thing that you believe you deserve, just focus on being the best you that you can be. And, and I just give my dad credit for so many brilliant, you know, points of wisdom that, that he gave uh, myself and my siblings. And so, and that rem my wife reminded me of that teaching. So I decided, you know what, L let me be me. And so, you know, I had changed the way I dressed, you know, because most of the white guys were wearing khaki pants and penny loafers. And, you know, and I had converted to fit, I wanted to fit in. But what I realized is that by fitting in, I was actually working two jobs. I was working the job I was being paid to do, and then I was working a job being someone that I wasn't. And, and, wow. and, so, and so I was doing double duty while everyone else was doing single duty. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to dress professional. But I'm going to dress the way I'm comfortable. So, yeah, I'd wear a shirt and a tie, but I would wear it in the style that I felt best fit my personality, my ethnicity, and my style. Uh, and, and I knew the feel, and, and I would, and so I decided to go up there. And when I sat in a meeting, if there was something that I felt didn't support the feel, I would raise that point, but I'd raise it uh, with facts, and I would raise it in a very constructive way. Uh, and then I felt like, you know what, I'm the only black person up here. Let me provide some diversity perspective to ensure we're making the right decisions for this consumer group. And so I would share thoughts, antidotes, ideas about the black community and ways we could be more effective. And, and before I knew it, people were gravi gravitating toward me. They wanted to know what I thought. They were inviting me to be a part of project groups and focus groups because I no longer showed up as a commodity. You know, when you are like everyone else, you are a commodity. You're commoditizing yourself. But I just, when I decided to stand out, People were attracted to that because they were interested in what I had to say because it was unique, it was refreshing, uh, and it was scarce. And, and I learned from that, you know, as a, as, a, as a black man in corporate America, as a black executive operating in a world that I don't have a lot of people that look like me, the best thing I can do is be the best possible, most authentic me that I can be in a way uh, that is... Again, authentic uh, in a way uh, that is uh, in, in a way that's progressive, but in a way uh, that is educational, that that helps make the organization better by bringing my unique learnings, my unique life, and my unique perspective, you know, to the conversation, so it can 
hopefully allow us to make better decisions. That, that was a great lesson that I learned, and I've never forgotten that lesson. I love that idea of being the best you you can be. You know, I wish I'd have met your father. He's a very wise person, no question about that. You know, and in 2020, we all witnessed the, you know, the tragic murder of George Floyd and, you know, all the issues of, around social injustice have really come to the forefront. As a black leader, do you feel that puts more pressure on you in any, any way? And, and what are you doing about it? How's it, how's it affecting your leadership? Well, I, I think, look, I think there is an obligation, for lack of a better word, that, that I have to make sure that, that I educate the people around me about these issues. And so the first thing that, that I did after the world and myself viewed that horrific video was to bring uh, my entire senior leadership team together and, 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 and have a conversation about race in America, have a conversation about policing, uh, and to share some stories with them of things that's, that's happened to me, uh, happened to my son, who's a young black man, uh, and happened to people in my family, so they can understand that, that this is not simply an isolated incident, but it's a systemic issue that exists you know, in our society. But in addition to that, I wanted them to understand that we all play a role in making this country better. And part of the role we play is by having a willingness to create a comfortable environment to have uncomfortable conversations. And, and, and I was giving them an example of creating a comfortable environment to have an uncomfortable conversation. because. To many of them, it was the first time that, that any black leader had sat them down and had a very candid conversation about how this, not, only, not how this affects society, let's talk about how this affects me. Let me give you specific examples, anecdotes, stories about things that I've personally experienced, and then let's talk through these things. And then my question to them is, how often are you sitting down with people on your team that looks like me, that are... Black, Latino, uh, et cetera, that may have a different view of the world and the world may have a different view of them. Are you sitting down and having conversations with them about what they are experiencing and what we can do, what you can do to help them possibly to solve and resolve these issues? And so part of what I did is I spoke out publicly, but, but more of my time was spent on, on two areas. And that is trying to make sure as a company that Lowe's understands and values diversity at all levels, and also to make sure that I continue to educate my children, because they have to live in this society. Uh, they have to operate in this society, and I want them to understand what it means to them and to try to provide some level of wisdom and education to them. And, and that's what I've tried to do. Uh, look, I'm, I'm blessed and honored uh, and privileged to be one of a very small number of black CEOs of public companies, specifically Fortune 500 companies, but I'm also wise enough to know that because the number is so small, it screams missed opportunity. There are so many talented, capable leaders out there of different ethnicities that are being overlooked uh, because the assessment process is flawed and is not understanding or picking up leadership traits that people like me bring to the table each and every day. And I'm just blessed and honored uh, that the board and the decision makers at Lowe's saw fit uh, to give me this opportunity. And I'm even more grateful that we put an incredible team of leaders together and we are moving this business forward and we're making a difference in the lives of a lot of people. Well, you're obviously doing that and, and, you know, hats off to you for that and, and your team. And, and it's been really enlightening to have this conversation with you, Marvin. I want to have a little bit of fun before we, before we break this off. So I got a lightning round of questions I want to ask you real quick. What three words best describe you? Uh, faith, family, and company. Uh, what gives you the most joy at work? Uh, teaching, training, and engaging with the associates. 
your biggest pet peeve? Don't be late. If you could be one person for a day, who who would it be and why? You know what, uh, David? Uh, I'm a I'm a I live a charm life. I got a beautiful wife of 30 years, two great kids. My dad went from being a sharecropper to seeing one of his kids run two Fortune 500 companies. There's not a lot of people I'm willing to trade with. <laughs> You're like that Kane Brown song. I'm already got heaven on earth here. You know that's great. You know what's something about you that few people would know? Uh, I'm a uh, I'm a naturally extreme introvert. Wow, I would have never guessed that one. Uh, do you have any hidden talents? Uh, I'm a bass player. I'm a musician. My family. Uh, when I grew up, we had a gospel singing group, and we traveled all over the southeast. Made a you know a few albums and records, and and I worked did studio work in college as, as one of my many ways of financial support. So I'm a bass player, and I have both my kids are really good uh, musicians also, and I got some brothers who are world class musicians. Do you do you perform at Lowe's and the big social events there? I did. I, I performed last year. Uh, with a group of other officers that we got together and surprised all of our store managers at our at our annual sales meeting, and uh, we had a had a great time. And I made them the commitment that if we made sales plan for 2020, I would force all of my direct reports to join me on stage uh, to uh, perform. And and so it's going to be a real interesting event when I make that happen. I'm sure it'll happen too, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you've, you've got this uh, great musician background and, uh, it, you know, you, you seem to have a little bit of self-deprecating humor. How, how important do you think that is as a leader? Look, I, I think it's very important. Like I, I told the team coming out of 2020, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time here at work uh, in 2021. We're going to dedicate a lot of our energy. We're going to spend uh, you know, hours away from our family, we may as well enjoy it. So it's, it's, it's good. It's good to laugh. It's good to stop and smell the roses, uh, and it's even better to be a blessing to the people around you. So I try to keep it light. We have, you know, tough decisions to make. We we're running a big company, uh, but I think it's 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 probably not a smart idea to take yourself too serious. You know, I I noticed another little known fact about you is you were father of the year in 2017. So congratulations for that. That's obviously very important. Do you have any tips for people on work-life balance? I mean, you obviously have been able to do both, you know, build your career and have a great family. Well, well, David, I have a really, I have a a list of very simple philosophies. And one is this, there's one surefire way for me to know what is important to you in your life and I simply look at your calendar. Uh, if it's not on your calendar, it's probably not important to you. And so you can look at my calendar and you're gonna see every birthday, every anniversary, you're gonna see uh, back when my kids were in high school, you're gonna see you know, sports events, you're gonna see parent-teachers conferences, you're gonna see uh, musical recitals. I never missed a parent-teachers conference, I never missed a recital, I never missed a sporting event, of any of my kids and, and, and all the various jobs uh, that I've had because uh, my dad never missed hours because he was a salesman, so his schedule was flexible. My mom worked at a factory, so she couldn't get off work. But my dad had enough flexibility that he, he attended every parent-teacher's conference and my parents attended every sporting event and every other you know uh, event that we had as kids. And I, I believe I owe... I owe that at least to my kids, and it's all about prioritization, it's all about scheduling, and it's all about balance. And when people say there's no such thing as work balance, work-life balance, I say hogwash. It is absolutely true. I, I rarely meet someone that has a miserable home life that has a great work life. I think, there, I think balance is required in order for you to sustain both uh, in a way that, that you can live a productive life. You know, I, I've you know, I've always felt that your, your, the results that you generate help you get balanced too. What's your view on that? I, I would say absolutely. At, at the end of the day, uh, if if you're a store manager and you have two assistant managers and, and one person is never on time, never meets their expectations, results are poor, and and you have another that's always on time, takes you know additional assignments leads well, has great results, and someone comes in and wants to get, you know, emergency time off to, to go do something with their family, 
I guarantee you, you're, you're more likely to give it to the person with outstanding results than the person that's never delivering on the expectations. And so I'm a huge believer that performance is the great equalizer. And so for me, I always focus first on performance because if I can perform at a high level, if I can deliver results, then I expect to have preferential treatment from my boss based on the fact that they see me as, as, a, as an indispensable part of the team uh, versus the alternative. So performance absolutely creates work-life balance. You know, and, and, and Marvin, you've mentioned faith a couple of times in this conversation. It, you're, you're a man of faith and you're public about it. And, it, you know, uh, that takes a bit of courage, too. What, what's your perspective on, on faith in the workplace? Well, look, uh, you know, David, my, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, my faith grounds me. It defines who I am. Uh, I believe that it's important uh, for each individual to make their own decision about how they will reflect their faith at work and how they will re- reflect it in how they live their lives. You know, for me, you know, I just go by the mantra of just letting my light shine. Uh, and, and people can see me. They can see the joy that I op- operate with. They can see the success I've been blessed and fortunate to have. They can see my family life. They can see my work life. And from that, if they want to know why I have this joy, why uh, my success, you know, has been relatively consistent, although I've had plenty of life challenges, why I'm always a glass half full, I'll be more than happy to share with them that it's primarily grounded in my faith. I don't think you need to go around preaching. I don't think you need to go around uh, trying to force your beliefs on individuals, but, but, but I am perfectly fine and acceptable with anyone of any faith of allowing that to, to be their, their grounding factor in who they are and, and how they operate and, and allowing that to drive their belief system. Uh, and I, I made a promise to God a long time ago that if he blessed me to continue to perform and to uh, reach you know, levels uh, in the corporate world of influence, that I was going to be true to who I am. Uh, but I was going to also make sure that I'd be a good steward to the business Uh, and that I drive all the necessary results and take care of people because at the end of the day, that's what I'm paid to do. I'm paid to create shareholder value, to create a great company for associates to work, uh, to operate with integrity, uh, and and to make sure as a company that that, that we are one of the best performing in the marketplace. And I can do all those things, you know, lead uh, with my faith and, and continue to make my family a priority. Well, Marvin, I can tell you, your, your, your light has definitely been shining this past uh, 45 minutes or so. And I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And congratulations on your success at Lowe's. You are driving shareholder value. You're getting that business really moving forward and you've got a great team. So congratulations and thanks again. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And again, I, I want to thank you for your commitment Uh, to leadership development. Uh, It it is something that I admire so much. Uh, I wish you well. And again, and thank you for acknowledging the team that I have here because you know as a former CEO, nothing can happen without a great group of men and women around you. So God bless you and have a great rest of 2021. Now look, we all face tough situations. But the hard truth is, most people shy away from them or just avoid them altogether. And that's natural. But man, I really admire how Marvin just grabs those moments by the horns. And Marvin teaches us the courage it takes to stand up and stand out in those tough situations may be exactly what we need to make our market work. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to consider something. Is there an issue in your organization that keeps getting swept under the rug because no one is willing to address it? What would it look like if you just stepped up and tackled that challenge to bring it to the attention of the people around you, to bring facts and constructive ideas for a real solution? Now, I know that's a big question. Heck, it may be way bigger than your week, but I hope it gets you thinking about the courage that we all need to have as leaders to tackle the tough assignments the way that Marvin has throughout his career. 
So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that the great leaders tackle the tough assignments. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.